Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we're joined by Brett Palmer, Heather Slavkin-Corzo, and Chris Hayes, who will each share a unique perspective on the outlook for policy initiatives that will impact the private equity industry under the incoming Biden administration. Brett Palmer is the president of the Small Business Investor Alliance. SBIA serves the interests of nearly 300 investors in the lower middle market in the U.S. Heather Slavkin-Corzo is the head of U.S. policy for the PRI, a United Nations-backed international network of nearly 3,000 asset allocators and investors focused on incorporating ESG into investment and ownership decisions. And Chris Hayes, my colleague, is ILPA's senior policy counsel and leads ILPA's advocacy efforts in the U.S. and Europe, as well as ILPA's legal initiatives. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for being with me today to talk about the implications for the most recent election for the private equity industry going forward. I wanted to start by asking Chris from the ILPA team, given the change in the administration to the Democrats and where we're likely to have a split Senate, what are the big policy issues that you expect to be at the forefront for the industry next year? Anything in particular you're focused on on behalf of ILPA's stakeholders? I think there's a few main areas and and a lot next year is going to depend on what happens on January 5th. So Senate control will change the dynamic of the next Congress in terms of what the Biden administration might be able to get done unilaterally and maybe more impactful, larger priorities versus If they have to work with Republican control of the Senate chamber, then there'll be more need to compromise. It also will impact the nominees for regulatory agencies. I think from an LP perspective, first and forefront, whether something happens in the fourth quarter or in the first quarter around COVID relief, I think there's some real impetus to do something there. So obviously ensuring that portfolio companies in the funds they invest in are able to access some of that COVID relief funding, I think will be helpful, particularly given that we've seen a a significant rise in COVID cases and and some various uh, levels of economic shutdown across the country. There's going to be a big focus on this administration, which was pretty clear during the campaign around diversity and, and sustainability climate change issues. There's been some various statements on taxes now, I'll let Brett talk a little bit more about that, but but basically that could have an impact on, on carried interest taxation and, and corporate tax rates at portfolio companies, which I think will depend on, on the Senate control issue we talked about. So from an LP perspective, I think we're really looking to continue to see positive reforms to improve alignment, transparency, and governance between limited partners and the managers they invest in. So for a while, ILPA has been pretty engaged on ensuring that there remains this this strong trust in the relationship between GPs and LPs by ensuring that fiduciary duties can't be contracted away. We're looking forward to the Biden administration to ensure that folks are going to act in the best interest of the fund at the manager and that that will be reflected both in the contract and the requirements under the Advisors Act. So we're also thinking about fee and expense transparency. It's something that ILP has been concerned about for a while, continues to be an issue that the SEC has uncovered through their examinations. 
recent risk alert this summer has highlighted continued problems with inappropriate fees and expenses being charged. And if you're an investor, you deserve to know kind of what you're being charged for the investment. We've seen a bunch of laws passed at the state level that I think have Mm -hmm. made sort of an arbitrage between these various requirements that LPs now have to go out and negotiate for. We'd really like to see a, a requirement that flows from the manager to ensure regular quarterly reporting of fees and expenses in private equity funds. And so we we think there's a real opportunity to increase the transparency in that industry around that issue. Beyond that, you know, we'd like to see continued robust SEC examination enforcement to ensure that folks are following the contractual agreements with their investors. And so we think there's a, a variety of ways that a new SEC might be able to to take action to improve things for investors and increase transparency and governance in the industry. Picking up on the themes that Chris has highlighted around what are sort of the priority areas for LPs with respect to the regulators, Brett, I'd love to hear more about your take here on nominations for those for those agency spots, what it might mean for the tone at the top at the SEC, how that impacts your members. Well, thank you, Jennifer. So the Small Business Investor Alliance is a trade association that's been around for over 60 years. And our membership is largely GPs, but also has LPs. And our mandate is to promote a healthy ecosystem for private capital investment in the lower middle and middle markets. So we really want to make sure we're promoting policies, make sure there's a really meaningful and healthy partnership between GPs and LPs, and that GPs can invest the way they need to invest and really drive the type of economic growth this this country needs. So that's what we're about. To your question, as far as what does this election mean as far as the people at these different agencies? And something that I've said for a long time is that people are policy. People are everything. And so the result of elections are you get to pick who the people are. And so you're going to see new leadership at the SEC. The chairman of the SEC has announced that he's going to be departing at the end of this month, about six months before his term ends. That will give the new Biden administration a chance to set the tone and have a majority when they get around to filling that slot. You'll also have leadership at the CFPB change, which will have a meaningful impact in many portfolio companies of the private equity funds that the LPs are investing in. You'll also have some new leadership at the SBA, an agency that largely most large institutional partners have not really focused on. But in this last year, we learned just how important the SBA can be as relates to the PPP and some of the other facilities out there, but also the Treasury and Fed. And so you're really going to have a lot of change in a meaningful way, particularly with how close the election is, because the Democrats control the House, but they control the House with a very, very fractional majority. You then have, as Chris pointed out, the election in Georgia, which is pending, which is far from a shoe in for the Republicans. The Republicans could lose both of those seats, in which case then the Democrats will have total control over setting the agenda. If they lose one of those seats, if the Republicans win just one of those seats, then the Republicans will get to maintain setting the agenda for oversight in the Senate and really clamping down on the ability of any legislation to get through that they're not comfortable with. But I think you're going to see from the new administration a meaningful push on the pandemic, as President-elect Biden has said repeatedly, and his staff are all going to be backing this up, that the pandemic's everything. And until we get our arms around that, we can't get the economy going. And so I think you're clearly going to have a different approach to dealing with the pandemic. As Chris touched upon on taxation, if the Democrats win both of those seats, you will get a tax increase through a process called reconciliation. Now, what that tax increase is and who gets taxed 
that's yet to be determined. And because it's so close of a majority in the Senate, you'll have some conservative Democrats that they'll have to satisfy. And in the House, since they have such a small majority, there are some really progressive Democratic members they're going to have to satisfy. That's going to be a tight needle to thread, but they'll be able to get something done. At least they should be able to get something done in the first six months along those lines. As you heard, uh, inclusivity is a big issue for this administration. President Biden is picking people reflective of the United States and of the diversity of the country. I think you're going to continue to have that. You've seen a lot of discussion already on climate and something he's prioritized, and the people that he's hiring are also prioritizing climate and what that means. But you're also going to be looking at the banking regulators taking different approaches, as, and that may affect leverage limits, that may affect the Community Reinvestment Act, and may affect how banks deal with private equity. And because the people are changing, those people are going to be able to, in some cases, undo regulations, or in some cases, create new regulations. You also have a 10 million person jobs hole that we're in. And so as the new administration is coming online and talking to the transition team, they really are focused on jobs. What does an economic stimulus package look like? But you've got a lot on the agenda here that is going to be very much driven by people. The obligations of the Senate is to, you know, is, is to really do the vetting and, and choosing who those high-level people are and approving them, giving the advice and consent. And if the Democrats win those two seats, it gives far more free reign. But it means that these people that are going to be in the administration at these senior levels are largely going to have to go through a regulatory process to make changes because getting legislation is going to be extremely difficult with a few exceptions where there's broad bipartisan agreement. And right now, there's not a lot of broad bipartisan agreement on much of anything in Congress. Brett, just to stay with you for a minute, and I think your point about the difficulty of legislative success in the coming year, not looking great for anybody, regardless of the outcome, even in Georgia, it's going to be tough, right? Because you're going to have to be bipartisan in just about anything you do to get it to pass House and Senate. You didn't mention the likelihood of a, a change on the treatment of carried interest as sort of part of that outlook on tax. What is your sense today of whether there's really a danger there or a risk that carry will be treated differently due to a legislative change? I think there's a real risk. Historically, one of the things that protected carried interest was the fact that it really didn't exist in law. It was just a, a, a legal concept of capital gains. And the last tax bill that was passed, they actually defined it. And once something's defined, you can change that definition or you can treat that definition differently. And so in a reconciliation package, I think carried interest will be an absolute bullseye for a political win for the Democrats to get if they can. And I think you're going to have uh, not a lot of Republicans are willing to lay down on the tracks in front of that train to pick up the cudgel to defend it because it's just a it's a concept that doesn't apply to most Americans. Even though carried interest is extremely important of maintaining alignment between GP and LP interests, particularly in middle market and lower middle market funds, and that you really want to have that alignment. It's a dangerous thing to have that changed and taken away where the real financial incentive is to just become bigger and, and make money off of fees. I think it's in the LP's interest to incentivize particularly smaller GPs to really perform, but not just the smaller GPs. And so I think that that is clearly one that is at, a, at an extreme point of risk. And frankly, I think there's also a question about just capital gains generally being on, on the table. Now, it may be that there's sort of a break point where above a certain income level of four or $500,000 has been talked about, then instead of having capital gains rates of you know, 20%, they might go up to the 39% or thereabouts range. That's a pretty big issue too. That's also going to be on the table because again, it, it doesn't affect everyone. It just affects 
the upper end directly, and the upper end is a small number of people. And so politically, it's easier to raise those taxes. But I, I really believe that carried interest and capital gains generally are at risk in a tax package if the Democrats take the Senate. Well, Brett, you mentioned a bugbear for LPs. LPs hate it when all the wealth is being created off the fee stream. So I'm glad you mentioned that in the context of the outlook for carry. I want to bring Heather into the conversation and the PRI's perspective, the principles for responsible investment, just in light of a lot of the priorities that we're anticipating from the Biden administration in the coming year and beyond, Heather, we've heard a lot about a focus on climate change and obviously on diversity, as Brent mentioned. And I'm, I'm sort of curious how that aligns with PRI's position on where the administration should be focused? Do those priorities map to what you would hope to see? And and how do you expect to engage on, on some of these measures as they come to life? This is exactly where the PRI has been focused for a number of years as an organization that is the largest organization in the world that's really focused on trying to move investors to act more responsibly to integrate climate risk and and inequality and really all ESG issues into investment actions. We are, you know, looking at what we are seeing and what we expect in the new administration and, and trying to find ways to move responsible investment and and to really have policies that are set in the regulatory agencies in Washington that help to move private capital to support the president's goals when you hear him talking about build back better. There's a tremendous need for economic stimulus in our country right now. There's a need for good job creation. There's a need for investment to address climate change. And it's going to be really hard to get a legislative package out of Congress that spends the amount of money that needs to be spent in order to address these critical issues that our country is facing. And so to be able to set regulation in ways that help to move private capital in those directions is really valuable and really critical in the moment that we're in right now. And so at the PRI, we've been looking at a number of policies that we think will be really useful to the investment community as we try to make decisions about capital allocation and investments and active ownership that help to support those goals and help to to mitigate risk in our portfolios and, and align our portfolios for for growth that we think is is going to come in the coming years as business and government move to try together to address climate change. And so the policy priorities that the PRI has been focused on are related to to really disclosure by issuers. And we've been looking, speaking mostly about public companies. But if we look at what's happening internationally, we see that in international markets, private companies and, and private equity firms are also being subject to the disclosure obligations related to climate-related risks. And I think from the PRI's perspective, we need consistent comparable data for investors in order to effectively integrate climate issues into their investment actions. And so getting that disclosure for both public and private companies is something that we're going to be really focused on. And then in addition to that, we are really interested in these questions around fiduciary duty. We've seen some recent shifts from the Trump administration in relation to the obligations of ERISA fiduciaries when it comes to integrating what they ultimately defined as pecuniary versus non-pecuniary issues 
We would argue that ESG issues are very often pecuniary issues. And so the regulations from the Department of Labor should not be read to impede uh, ESG integration. But we think that there needs to be more clarity from the Department of Labor to, to avoid any uncertainty on the part of ERISA plans as to their ability to integrate ESG factors and that those factors are, in fact, pecuniary or material financial factors to be integrated into their investment actions. We've already seen some exciting movements from federal regulators since the results of the election have become clear when it comes to sustainable finance. We've seen that the chairman of the Federal Reserve has announced his intention to begin participating in the network for greening the financial system. That's a global network of regulators from around the world that are working together to integrate climate risk into bank and financial markets regulation. And we expect that as we see the shift in leadership, that we'll start to see more aggressive moves towards sustainable investing that align with some of the goals you guys have mentioned earlier that President-elect laid out during his campaign around addressing climate change, addressing racial inequality, addressing women's issues, and, and then, of course, addressing pandemic and the challenging health outcomes that so many Americans are concerned about right now. Heather, you mentioned a couple of things I, I was hoping you would. The cry for clarity from the Department of Labor on fiduciary duty, a lot of ILPA's members have pointed out that the most recent statement really felt like a meaningful step back in terms of the ability to integrate ESG into investment considerations. So I'm really glad you called that out. I want to stick with the point you raised around ESG disclosure specifically for private market funds. And you referenced the fact that this is taking place in some jurisdictions internationally the European Union being um, the obvious example here with the sustainable finance disclosure regulation, which goes into effect, at least phase one goes to effect next year. And I'm just sort of curious, when you think about lessons learned from the process of engaging on SFDR that might apply to private market investors in the U.S., and again, just for the audience's benefit, this is both LPs and GPs. This is, this is not regulation in Europe that only applies to the GPs. How do you think about what that might look like or what would PRI's positioning be on private market funds and investors' disclosures specifically on ESG? Yeah, that's a really good question. So as we think very broadly about the, the disclosures we need, the PRI's recommendations to regulators around the world is that investors need consistent, comparable data. And we need that data so that we can integrate the information effectively and efficiently into our investment processes. In order to evaluate the risks and the opportunities in our portfolio, we need to be able to make apples-to-apples comparisons about the exposure and about the activities of those underlying firms. What our recommendations have been to regulators and to the transition team as we have conversations is that we really need a couple of things. The first thing is we need rules from the Securities and Exchange Commission that define exactly what the disclosures are so that there's consistency. And we need the commission to really make a concerted effort to make sure that investors' voices are integrated into the consideration of the nature of the data that they're collecting. And that is intended to make sure that the specific data points that 
are ultimately required are the data that is going to be most useful to investors and also that it's provided in a format that is useful to the consumers of the information. I think we're a little early in the process in terms of thinking specifically what those disclosures are and, and thinking about how it compares. I don't think that you know the U.S. is likely to undergo a process that is identical to the one that's, that's been undertaken in Europe. Thanks, Heather, and agreed. We can't imagine it would play out in the U.S. the way it would in the EU, and certainly not least because LPs are not regulated by the SEC the way they fall under the commission's jurisdiction in the EU. That said, of course, going back to Department of Labor, you do have ERISA fiduciaries who do fall under an oversight regime. But I wanted to turn back to the legislative agenda and ask Chris to give us his sense for what might be in the cards with this new Congress, with this new administration coming in with respect to legislation pointed specifically at private equity. We saw a proposal from Senator Warren last year and the Progressive Democrats in Congress that really uh, zeroed in on specific aspects of the private equity model. It did not progress. And I'm just wondering, with, with the shift that we expect in Congress and the administration, is this sort of legislation likely to resurface, Chris? And if so, what's the uh, likely prognosis there on its success? Last Congress, we really saw a refocus, I think, on private equity that we haven't really seen since the Dodd-Frank legislation back during the global financial crisis. So you saw a significant focus on private equity, treatment of portfolio company workers, um, certainly some significant challenges there, particularly in the retail sector that Toys R Us, some of these other organizations that had challenges due to retail and were private equity owned and and had some unfortunate outcomes. And really thinking about how to address some of those challenges, the impact on workers and the fairness to those those workers. I think what came out of that broad push rhetorically was actual concrete legislation that Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congressman Mark Pocan introduced last year in the House and the Senate that actually had a hearing in November 2019 called the Stop Wall Street Looting Act, which was a bit of a sensational title. I think there was an immediate reaction from the the industry that was very against this legislation, which was extremely comprehensive. And I think once you looked at the details, at least from a limited partner perspective, there's a real view that you know, some of these things were positive reforms that we thought were helpful around fiduciary duty or fee and expense reporting, things like that. I think there were a lot of provisions around changing the bankruptcy code that actually I think some some managers might actually be supportive of. Just about basic kind of fairness, paying pensions that you're obligated to pay or potentially changing the the bankruptcy ordering of you know worker obligations ensuring that workers that were adversely impacted by things that happened in the market where PE-owned companies had some challenges would be protected. But I think there were some real concerns in that legislation as well. And that was really around liability. So there were a variety of liability provisions that would make it very difficult for managers to operate a fund or take that on because it, it resulted in kind of direct personal liability for those managers themselves. And I think from an LP perspective, while we're supportive of reforms that ultimately take our industry forward, 
and reforms that that help workers at, at the portfolio companies. I think we look at ESG, as Heather was mentioning, about a way to address some of these these challenges at the portfolio company level from a human capital management perspective. But our members are investing in this in this asset class to generate returns, right? So our members are public pensions trying to pay pensions to teachers and first responders or universities trying to fund scholarships or whatever it may be. Ultimately, we're investing in the asset class for the returns it can generate. And if you make it difficult to operate a fund, that will ultimately impact those returns. And so I, th- I think that was kind of the approach we took. I think what we saw in that November hearing is that really there wasn't that appetite for supporting, particularly on a bipartisan level, legislation that would holistically change the private equity industry. So you didn't see that bill really move. Given that there's a tighter margin in the House, this Congress, I think there's even less likelihood that that bill can move in its current form. Thanks, Chris. And I, I want to give Brett and Heather the last word here on the legislative outlook in particular, because I think we've all been talking about regulatory action being the likelier path to implement policy. And Brett, you said earlier, policy is people. I'm thinking about the carrot stick aspect here. And Heather referenced the carrot on you know, how do you channel investment into things that really impact on things like climate. But Brett, what's on your radar as far as likely legislative changes that could impact the industry? Well, thank you. It's a good question. I would say a couple of things. One, yes, you may get that Stop Wall Street Looting Act reintroduced. I think the legislation's a disaster and would be a disaster for both GPs and for LPs. Well-intentioned, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions that haven't been thought through. You know, for example, in the bankruptcy piece, the idea of putting farther down the line the private equity fund from getting paid back or the private credit fund from being paid back after workers have been and just taken what's left over, that's a meaningful change to the risk profile of investing. And that's and that's an issue. But I do think it's going to be very difficult to get things through. But there's power that LPs have right now to do many of the things that are being asked for in legislation. And the purpose of legislation, to your point, is a generally a coercive power. And that coercive power can be a good power to stop bad behavior. But LPs have a lot of power right now as they're negotiating which funds they're investing in and how they're investing in the terms of them to ask for many of these things right now. And in smaller and medium-sized funds, they're going to get them. So I would encourage LPs to be active in figuring out how what the things that matter to them and to have them included in their agreements, whether they be climate, whether they be social justice, find the best solutions that, that are out there. But I think that the, the big one that I think is on the legislative side is just really on, on, on tax And that's only if the Democrats get those two seats in Georgia. If the Republicans do hold the Senate on the legislative side and on the oversight side, they'll get Senator Toomey of Pennsylvania overseeing the Senate Banking Committee. And one of the things about him is that he really absolutely understands finance and he understands private capital markets, both a lower middle market, middle market, upper middle market, global. He's a very, very smart, informed man who has a professional career in investing prior to this. So I think you'll see a lot more oversight along those lines. If um, you get Senator Brown as the chair, Senator Brown from Ohio is very much an old school Democrat, very pro-labor union. And I think you would get a very open hearing to some of that legislation. I do think, again, as you get hearings and you work through the process, you will get a more moderated piece of legislation. But again, I, I don't think you'll ever be able to get 60 votes for that legislation as written. But there are some things that need to be fixed in the industry. And many of those can be fixed right now between GPs and LPs just engaging directly outside of the slow process of government. 
I think around some of these challenges that have been raised, I think LPs historically have really been, look, we're, we're limited partners. We're not involved in the management of these companies. And so some of these criticisms around the model and, and how these companies are treated, there's not much we can do. And while I know Brad had indicated in the, the small and mid-sized fund market, there might be more opportunity to negotiate elements of diversity or climate or better human capital management practices. I think many LPs are constrained by the fact that they need to deploy capital and many pensions need to earn a 7.5% return annually. So they have a limited number of places, particularly when you're writing a large check to deploy that capital. And sometimes you become too too large and the negotiation aspect is, is less impactful. So I think there's more feeling from the LP community. I think that they need to kind of step up and be more vocal about some of the challenges around worker impact human capital management and that they do care about those issues and they they do want long-term sustainable businesses. We're going to continue, as Brett mentioned, to see this rhetoric, whether it's in oversight hearings in the House or if Senate control changes and a lot of discussion about practices in the industry. And I think one of the best ways to address that is to kind of take that head on and acknowledge where there's challenges and talk about you know, ways the industry is is trying to resolve them, including through implementation of, of ESG factors into their investment process. Both Brett and Chris have made some interesting points about how much of what LPs want can be executed through contract and then just looking to the environment in which we operate, how much of that's going to happen in the regulatory domain versus the legislative one. Heather, um, when you think about LPs who really care about ESG and their ability to make those gains on a bilateral basis, contractually, would love your take on on that. But also going back to what you said earlier about what are those incentives that would move money meaningfully when it comes to climate change? What what are you expecting in the time to come, and where is PRI going to focus energy specifically? I wanted to just pick up on one of the points that Chris was just raising related to GPs and LPs looking together at the human rights impact of their investments, because this is an area that the PRI is just beginning to look at. And we actually have issued a call for papers to try to gather information on some of the leading industry practices from the general partners on the integration of human rights due diligence, monitoring, and remediation. And so it's something that I would really encourage listeners to check out and to think about whether there are things that you all would like to highlight from us because the PRI is excited about engaging more deeply on this set of issues. I think that we're going to see some quick action from the new regulators related to the disclosure issues that we raised. My guess is that it will begin with a focus on public markets. And I think looking at the opportunities for the DOL to take action on ESG, one of the biggest areas there is around fiduciary duty. It's something that LPs are raising, that asset owners are really focused on. We continue to hear concerns about some of the impediments on the evolution of investment practice that would be created by those regulations. When we think about legislative opportunities, Obviously, there's going to be different opportunities if we have two Democrats who win in Georgia and then presumably uh, Senator Schumer, who's currently the minority leader, becomes the majority leader and gets to set the agenda for Congress. You know, there are a number of areas where the PRI has focused 
on looking at mandatory ESG disclosure, on updating fiduciary duties to align the concept of ESG integration and fiduciary obligations with the way that it exists in other advanced economies and, you know, trying to make sure that there's, you know, consistent obligations for the market actors who are active across jurisdictions. And then there's also a lot that can be done with regard to ESG and with regard to affirmative action to address some of the underlying issues related to climate change and inequality. One of the things that we've seen in other markets is that there's been a major focus on green stimulus and making sure that efforts that are undertaken to address the economic slowdown include stimulative spending that's aimed at addressing climate-related risk. And if that is done effectively in the U.S., those could present opportunities for limited partners and for general partners. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Heather, Brett, and Chris. Clearly, legislative outlook uncertain, but through the reconciliation process, we might see some tax changes yet to come for the industry. But certainly sounds like the bulk of quick action is going to be channeled through the agencies themselves and through regulatory action. So I just want to thank you all. This was a really helpful, insightful conversation and really enjoyed having you with us today on the podcast. 